on air. What is different about it in a 2023 context is there's a confluence of forces that are really amplifying what we mean by the future of money and particularly around digitisation for our customers. This is On Air by ANZ Institutional. We bring you the latest market-leading analysis and thought leadership from more than 30 global markets, giving you the information you and your business needs to thrive. One of the topics I think, you know, treasurers are becoming more and more familiar with is this, what I call the digital transition and what this means for their business. Now, what we have seen very clearly for our customers is the pace of technological change has been significant. COVID was the accelerant around integration, automation, thinking about business continuity, and really thinking about how to enable their infrastructure to be able to support a digital interaction First, from an internal purpose around that BCP working from home. But what we've seen is the bulk of customers now really use that to understand, well, then how do I take this transition and enable my ecosystem, my both my suppliers, my buyers, and importantly, my employees, and ultimately our customers. So that kind of inherent need to digitise is part of remaining relevant for them competitively. It's important for a productivity purpose, and it's important from a resiliency and governance um, stream. So when we think about the future is is digital, what we then go back down to is particularly when you're speaking across with treasurers and CFOs, the first place they often look at that to make an assessment around their digital progression is really around their treasury functions, and this is where payments becomes at the forefront. Now, we know for many years, we've been talking about real-time payments, we've been talking about the use of data, we've been talking about integration since the mid kind of 2010s. And so it's not a new topic per se. What is different about it in a 2023 context is there's a confluence of forces that are really amplifying what we mean by the future of money and particularly around digitization for our customers. Number one is that whole story about integration and digital um, uh, delivery. Two is around real-time payments or what we like to refer to as real-time treasury because payments is one part of the transaction. The other is the data that is associated to make sense of the transaction. And the third element is really around the cybersecurity governance compliance risk that has to wrap around all of this for our customers to ensure that they can keep their company safe keep their customers safe, but from that real time of treasury perspective, give the confidence to be able to uh, engage in a real time world. And whether that is still in a batch um, payment process or in a true 24 by seven, but the mechanism for delivery is is digital. And I think that's been the huge transformation. And that's what's top of mind for our customers was how do they continue themselves on that road of progression of making sure they're more digitally enabled to make sure that they can compete. Yeah, so great intro, Lisa. I think you framed it up really nicely. And absolutely, it's digitization. And, you know, the government in the Australian government in June released its strategic plan for the payment system. And that is absolutely riddled with objectives around digitization, efficiency. You look at um, an end date for checks, a future end date for the direct entry payment system. They're talking about... um, you know, building up skill sets in the digital workforce. We're talking about action initiation um, and payment initiation through third parties, through the consumer data right, digital identity, 
um, even the need for a policy position on CBDC, central bank digital currency. And obviously, as Lisa says, that wraparound of security, you know, security, resilience, um, protection from scams, cybersecurity. So as the economy is becoming more digital, the payments industry is supporting that. You know, if I can just pick sort of one of those areas, which when we think about digitization and then we go, we're still using checks in 2023, um, the elephant in the room, right? And so the government has actually called it and said they want to see an end date for checks by 2030 uh, and that they will stop using checks by 2028. And a lot of us have looked at that and gone, that's pretty far away. Um, but others have gone, actually, wow, that's a real, um, that's going to be a real ambitious target. And depending, I think our customers are across those ranges of, you know, we're not using checks today, what are you talking about? To, you know, really quite paper-based, less digital organizations who are going to really take some time to get there. So, you know, there's the payment mechanism of the check itself, which is going to have to go um, away, and that was paper, and you're moving to digital. But the real impact with a move to digital is the change to processes and business models that surround something like a check. So, you know, you're going to the need for not only five-day liquidity, but real-time, right? Um, and the opportunity to receive the payment in real-time also means that you actually have the funding, need to have the funding and liquidity to pay in real time. Um, a paper signature manual approval process that is now digitized in banking channels. Um, so there's a lot of movement that needs to happen in the long tail. Um, and, you know, Australia, while we have decreased check usage by 90% over the last 10 years, and a lot of us feel like we don't really use checks, um, we're still a lot, we have a lot higher volume of check usage than say our counterparts did in New Zealand when they exited the check system. Um, and, you know, so the, the volumes are lower um, in New Zealand or were lower in New Zealand. Um, and also they didn't have the same sort of legislative barriers that we have in Australia. So there's a lot to sort of still work through. Um, it's up to the industry and the industry needs to look at how do we continue to meet our customers' business needs? Um, things like simple addressing, pay ID goes a long way to that. Um, so, you know, solutions and replacement, better solutions, but solutions that continue to meet customer needs are going to be the focus of the industry over the next five to seven years. And I've talked about checks, um, you know, that's one end of the spectrum, but we also have the workforce of our payment system, the direct entry system, which is direct entry, that's that's credits, that's pay anyone transactions, but that's payroll, that's supplier payments, our real big bulk payments. It's also our direct debits. Um, and the government has actually come out with a support for an end date um, for the industry to set an end date for direct entry and, and has also flagged that MPP is a viable replacement. So that's another really big transition for our customers to move to a true 24-7 operating environment. And, you know, we need to work through how much does actually need to be real-time. But as Lisa said, you know, with real-time treasury, it's payments, but it's the data. And that's where NPP is, you know, 20 legs over direct entry because we actually have that rich data and we can help our customers with solutions around reconciliation and visibility and transparency that they weren't able to get 
in systems like check and direct entry. And, and Jackie, I think that's a great point because one of the things we talk about is, you know, I think NPP or real-time payments, uh, our infrastructure gives us the opportunity to start to harmonise across the domestic, across the cross-border payments landscape. And I think one of, you know, a lot of the treasurers and financial controllers I'll speak to, it's the complexity of the current infrastructure that they need to connect to the high-value stream, the low-value domestic, cross-border, each with different um, data paradigms, each with different processing mechanisms that sit around them, with recall. Um, and I think, you know, one of these things, even with the government going out and putting a date on checks and, and putting a flag around the domestic um, clearing system being um, a direct entry or you know, our local ACH, I think that's a big boost because it actually gives that opportunity for a lot of our corporates and institutional customers that time to make sure that their ERP can consume um, real-time payments, NPP payments on a genuine 24 by 7, that they may not want to operate on the sixth and seventh day of the week from a business model perspective, but can their infrastructure support if they should want to adapt to a six and a seven? And many of our companies who have distribution on a Saturday morning, this is a real benefit for them um, because it really gives them... But they also need to make sure that upstream and downstream within their ERP, their treasury management systems, right through to um, their procurement, that they can actually make sure that that's all enabled, that they can consume balance and transaction data seven days a week um, to get the benefit of it. And I think that's something New Zealand thinks done quite well with its move to seven-day payments. It's really, rather than layering the system, it's actually uplifted the existing platform to be able to do that on a seven-day, even though it's 30-minute intervals, um, between delivery, it still gives that real sense of, you know, that uh, that shift to what I call a real-time economy and supporting our customers on that transition. Yeah, and it really is, as you say, it's all through the value chain. It's the customer, it's the bank, it's the ERP provider, it's the central banks to provide liquidity. And within those organizations, it's a, the whole sort of stream of, you know, treasury through to operations, accounts payable, all of that. It, so it really is a whole of ecosystem move, which takes time. And ISO, you know, we've got that little little program kind of globally happening at the moment called ISO, which is really around that data harmonization piece, which again, that's a big thing for customers who've got legacy um, uh, processes and legacy infrastructure that's been used to consuming 18 characters of information on a direct entry payment that now needs to be enabled to be able to consume richer, higher quality data to improve that reconciliation piece. So look, for us, I think, you know, being in the payment system, this is an amazing time because we're going through such a transition, um, probably like one I haven't seen previously because we've got these genuine global forces around the ISO transformation around um, the, the data point. We've got real-time payments, which is a global phenomena with a local application and a local um, place, but we're seeing that connectivity with it. We are seeing the importance of integration automation being not just buzzwords now for how to get um, uh, improved productivity, but being the enablers for productivity with our customers. And then most importantly, you know, the bit that we talk at the end, which is in, most important for our customers is their customers' experience and how we embed a lot of these capabilities in their service propositions, whether it's on a collections basis, whether it's part of a digitally delivered service, and we're seeing that through particularly in the telco sector, whether that's embedded in actually the service. 
I think this is a bit where we really now see, see payments in a very different way. We've always talked about payments being frictionless and uh, invisible, and we've seen that particularly in the gig economy, but I think we're now starting to see that transcend into other parts of the economy as well, where it's getting into core corporate land. And again, I think it's exciting, but we cannot underestimate the cost and the investment required to business to be able to adapt their systems, to be able to support these systems end to end and to make sure that they are generally part of their overall value chain. Yeah, it is a massive change and investment. But when we look towards the end of it and, you know, you mentioned ISO and people hear letters and numbers and sort of glaze over and what does that actually mean? But it is about the global interoperability and harmonization. And you look sort of through the weeds and see to the end of it, you know, we can actually operate a lot more smoothly, a lot more efficiently um, globally, you know, within Australia, across different segments and, um, and across the globe. And we have market infrastructures looking at, well, how do we connect potentially directly to each other. Um, we have central bank digital currencies and then central bank digital currency islands um, to go, well, how do we we connect there? And so there's so much opportunity for a real wholesale change in how we do business across the globe. Um, and it's all down to that data, um, the standardization, harmonization and interconnectedness really. And just to draw to the financial um, stability board, the FSB roadmap too, that goes for standardization, calls for standardization of cross-border payments to an end customer experience. So, you know, they're faster, they're more transparent. All the pain points that we hear from customers, you know, banks, industries, governments, they're looking to solve, right? But it does, it requires a huge transition investment and time and a lot of complexity to get to the simplification at the end of it. But all this leads to, you know, from an Australian, from an RBA perspective about how do we make Australia, keep Australia competitive in increasing digital world? How do we make sure that our customers are leveraging that infrastructure to be globally competitive? And, you know, what I, one of the things I find um, having been in the payment space um, quite a while, Jackie, is you know, uh, three, four years ago it was all about frictionless. It was about pace and speed. And now we're talking about putting some grit mm. uh, back into the system. And, you know, so when we talk about the future of um, payments and and what that means, you know, I really tend to get some more of your thoughts about, you know, you mentioned previously about resiliency and, and cybersecurity, but that's a real issue. It's capturing the headlines here in Australia as it, as it rightly should it's a huge risk for uh, not only for the banks, but for our customers. And we play a critical role in, in supporting our customers lift that resiliency. How are you thinking about it from a, a payments, you know, an industry perspective and, um, you know, keen to get your take on, you know, the conversations that are happening around the importance of that resiliency and, and cyber protection to support our payments infrastructure? So it's a really good question because you draw on those, items like resilience, cybersecurity, but then you have customer protection too and scams and fraud. And the faster we get, the more real time we get, the higher the expectations, the faster those financial crime occurrences can happen. Um, and the more we need really, really resilient and secure systems. So you're right, you know, we sort of go from how do we take out all the friction to how do we actually introduce friction at the right points? 
but certainly not across the board because we still want that seamless integrated customer experience. Um, on resilience, and as we look at, okay, if we don't have checks anymore, and if we move to a real-time payment system, obviously top of mind for everyone is, well, what's the backup? What's the contingency? And the thinking that, well, you have to have multiple different rails in order to have a resilient system and to have viable backups is probably going a bit um out of date, I suppose, that thinking and to go, we actually need to build that resilience into the systems. And you don't need to have different approaches to doing things to be able to have redundancy. And so there's, um, you know, APRA has released its standard CPS 230, and there've been uh, similar standards in, in the UK um, around operational resilience and re really bringing up the um, the thresholds to which we have to operate and provide those critical services to our customers. So there's regulatory requirements around resilience, but then, you know, there's the customer need and we're continually looking at how do we provide continuity in all scenarios to make sure that customers of all sizes can continue to do their primary business functions in the event of a minor outage all the way through to that catastrophic blackout scenario. I mean, this is something that that banks, that governments, um, and all of the ecosystem partners are really looking at to make sure that these critical services are always available. And it's, you know, 99.9999% yeah. of the time. So that's that resilience and availability. And then there's scams. You know, then you have your um, you know, your social engineering and your um, really targeting of, of vulnerabilities across the end-to-end -end value chain. And it's amazing when people have the opportunity to make a whole lot of money, the depths that they'll go to to understand how things work and where any little gaps are, and which is why it's just so important for us to be operating at the highest level of integrity in terms of how we develop, how we put systems in place to protect, to protect the customers, protect systems. And it's the whole ecosystem. It's not just a banking thing or just the telco thing. And the Australian government's established a, a national anti-scam center, which supports that whole of ecosystem approach to scams. Um, the industry's looking at range of solution to protect customers, to look at the data, analyze data, and really make decisions based on um, based on that behavioral analysis and, and trends and avoid real blunt rules and black and white rules that actually add too much friction into the process. But to say we can shift and um, put guardrails in place when we need them, take them away when we don't. Um, so the government's also committed to a cybersecurity strategy. Um, and we're looking at an industry at a confirmation of payee-like solution, similar yeah. to what we have in the UK. So there's a lot going on around protection. And then there's that little bit because, you know, that's a great segue to um, central bank digital currencies. We talk about um, digital um, assets. Um, again, how are you thinking from an industry? Is that adding more complexity, do you think, to the landscape? Or do you think that really is where it's going when we think about 
the opportunity for you know smart contracts with embedded payments, whether it's be a stable coin or a CBDC or some other form of tokenized um, payment mechanism. What's your thinking around that, Jackie? So absolutely, tokenization, digitization, digital money and digital currency and smart contracts are really opening up a, a world of opportunity in terms of the way we can orchestrate um, atomic settlement. And there's genuine benefits uh, in a, a tokenized economy and a digital economy. Um, so absolutely, we're looking at that, investing in that, and we see that as um, a genuine path in the future. But we also still are using checks and, and direct entry. So there's a really broad spectrum of digital payments, di digital payment innovation and digital economy. And so we know that government and regulators are looking at, well, how do you bring these new technologies into the regulatory perimeter? How do we make sure that they can be done safely, operated on safely and customers protected as they would be? And so it's about applying the same rules to the same sort of similar functions and risks. That's all being looked at. But I think we're going to have this for the foreseeable future, this sort of parallel universes of innovation. And that's okay, right? And, and that's because we are going to have certain interactions and trades that occur in a purely digital environment and others that are more hybrid. All Australians will have access to cash as long as any Australian wants access to cash. You know, So you do still have the cash system and the physical cash system. So I don't think any of these things contradict each other. And I think, you know, the world, there's enough, there's enough room for it all. So I'm really looking forward to hearing the diverse voices at Cybos. So I think there's quite a few things we'll be hearing from our customers. Look, CBDC, stable coins have been a, a lot of the talk since we had Cybos um, in Amsterdam last year. We were talking about some of the use cases, but I think it's really a sort of continuation of that test and learn what does this mean? But I think what we can't underestimate still is the transition to a real-time treasury. And what does that mean? What, where do the banks play? Where will fintechs play and augment banking propositions? Um, what is meant around resilience? And I think cybersecurity will continue to play a, a very large topic. On the bank side, and, and again, recognising Cybos is very much about, about the banks each connecting with, with one another. You know, again, what we're starting to see here is um, with all of this, it, this requires significant technological investment and spend. And I think really what we are seeing is the banks that are really starting to lean into this and those that will play probably much more of a secondary role um, in terms of this. So for those that are, you know, it's very much whether they're leading in the trade and supply chain space, whether it's in the correspondent banking, whether it's in the core cash management space, I think this is really around how we continue to seek, um, understand what's happening globally, understand what our regulators are thinking in different jurisdictions, what that could mean for us, because we know that as much as the banks are, are well connected in terms of understanding the world of payments, particularly some of the regulators, which helps, I think, more with a kind of global harmonisation and expectations. Similarly, data will continue to be a real strong topic. Um, and the big one, which I've said this year, which will take absolute prominence, is that little thing called AI. Um, and, and again, you know, we can see already with the agenda, there's a number of topics um, that are going to cover AI. I think that is going to be probably one of the most transformative technologies that will hit not only just banking, but hit our, our customers. But fundamentally, it's going to be around, you know, uh, what are the use cases that are going to be meaningful for application of AI? What are the skills required? 
What is the governance and frameworks? And importantly, how do we do this safely? Because I think of everything with the speed and the excitement around change in this space, we always have to kind of ask ourselves, and how do we do this safely? You've covered it really well, Lisa, and you use the term global harmonization. And I think that's probably, that stands out for me as the theme across so many different conversations, because like we talked about earlier, there's interlinking of market infrastructures, there's the ISO harmonization and standardization across borders, real-time payments, uh, real-time treasury, but real-time cross-border payments too. And um, SWIFT has been an orchestrator of that, um, but as well as the, you know, interlinking directly um, market infrastructures. AI is key and trust underpinning all of it. And a few years ago, there was a lot, we heard a lot about digital identity, a lot. And I think I see less about it as its own standalone topic now because it sort of permeates you know, the digital currency and digital asset conversations. We talk about AI, we talk about, so it's really about trust and you know, identity is one aspect of that. That was On Air by ANZ Institutional. Be sure to like, follow or subscribe to hear more. This podcast is intended as thought leadership material. It is not published with the intention of providing any direct or indirect recommendations or to influence any person to make a decision in relation to any financial product or class of financial products. It is general in nature and does not take account of the circumstances of any individual or class of individuals. For further information, please refer to the full disclaimer at institutional.anz.com.